0: Amen, Lord. Uh, you are, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you for your grace and your mercy to us, God. We thank you for everything that you've accomplished for us on our behalf, uh, not just for one single saving moment, Lord, but but that sustains us, that we trust in throughout all of life now. And uh, God, so much of what we need to see is how the gospel doesn't, doesn't just inform the uh, what, what you save us into or the way that you save, but actually what you save us into, God. That it's still all about you. And so we just ask for, for clarity this morning, Lord, that we would see you in your word, that you would enable your people to, to be reflections of you. That when people see us, they they genuinely see Jesus. They see the love of Christ. And and God, I pray the same thing for myself this morning that you would help me to just get out of the way, that nobody would see me, but that they would see you clearly as you present yourself in your word, and we pray all these things in your name, amen. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning, how we doing? It's good to see you all, turn to Romans 12 with me. If you happen to be visiting with us for the first time, just so you know, some context here, we've just been walking through the book of Romans this year. This morning we'll be in Romans 12, starting in verse 9. Romans 12:9, and we'll be going through verse 21 here. Let me, let me read this for us to start. Starting in verse 9, Paul writes, Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Serve with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but instead associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. And if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me, and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Uh, since the beginning of time, really, uh, Humanity has been plagued with belief systems that we would call false gospels, right? Uh, By making false gods in our own image or or maybe coming up with our own requirements for salvation, humanity, as we know, oftentimes misses the mark on what the true message of the gospel is and how one can truly obtain salvation with God. As I use this term, there's probably several that come to mind that we know in our context already, right? Uh, Prosperity gospel, maybe the social gospel, whatever it is, but but one that I think has maybe plagued the church maybe more than anything else, and one that we're often, I think, blind to, is the false gospel of moralism. Al Mohler wrote an article on this where he says, this false gospel can take many forms and can emerge from any number of political and cultural impulses. Nevertheless, the basic structure of moralism comes down to this, this one thought. It's the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. One of the issues that we run into, I think, when we think about this, is that we miss just how pervasive that this this false gospel can be in our our hearts, in our minds, our teaching, our prayers, our, our relationships even. I think one major way this is true is found in how we, we often only think about the gospel as good for the way to get saved and not as being the lens through which we see all of life now and, and the ongoing Christian life included. What do I mean by this? Well, it's it's easy to answer the question, how can one be saved with the right answer, right? Only by, by faith in the grace of Christ, faith in the person and work of Christ. That's easy for us this morning. What's not so easy is saying, what does that message now look like played out beyond a single saving moment? Are you with me on this? In other words, how does the gospel look in the life of God's people? Because we, we have to say that it looks like something. If the gospel really changes us, if it's really true, it has to look like something. And so what does it look like and how do we talk about that? And friends, this right here is where if we're, if we're not careful, we can fall into a false moralism that is antithetical to the gospel where even we who who answer the question rightly, how can one be saved? This is where we so often fall into the false gospel of moralism. We won't say that you're saved by works. We won't even say that works are required to maintain salvation. But we will, in different ways, detach our good works from the gospel. And in so doing, fall into the same exact thing on this side of salvation. Getting saved is not about improvement in behavior, but being saved is And so, very simply, this morning, our goal is going to be to to try to see how to not do that, (laughs) how to not do that. And admittedly, the struggle with this idea and maintaining uh, this this balance, maybe that we're fighting for, that we need in the gospel, is the fact that there are a lot of commands in the Bible, right? There, There just are. There's a lot of commands. There's a lot of things that we are told that we should do, that we ought to do. Things we're told we ought not to do. And so, what am I supposed to do with that? And that's exactly where we are today in Romans 12. Paul, Paul is starting to get very practical in this chapter, but he's still, I think, been somewhat kind of uh, conceptual, right? But now he gets very specific. He gets very detailed in what the life of a Christian should look like. And so the task for this, us this morning, it's to see how to both acknowledge on one hand our, our responsibility to do the things that the Lord Jesus is calling us to this morning. But also asking the question and trying to see how we can do that without detaching it from the gospel, from the free grace of the gospel. In other words, we want to ask the question, how does the gospel itself and its message keep us from a moralistic mindset, even in the midst of our faithfulness to all that God asks of us? We see these commands that we're going to go through in Romans 12, really oriented, I think, towards two groups of people. There's those first inside uh, the church insiders within the church community, and then we have, I think, outsiders, those who are outside the body of Christ. And Paul's going to instruct how we're to act and serve both people, both both types of people as faithful expressions of the gospel, and ultimately of God's love towards all people. And so we'll ask this question, we'll ask how, how can we be faithful in these ways to to both groups all while not ever detaching it from the gospel of grace. How can we do all of this that Pauls exhorting us to without falling into moralism? And I think a fundamental part of answering this is seeing how he starts this whole list of commands there right in verse 9. There's one kind of overarching idea here that that governs our actions that rightly un, rightly understood it keeps us tethered to the gospel and keeps us from falling into this moralistic mindset, and so we'll, we'll start there. What is the big idea and the big things to to kind of keep in mind with all of this, and then how specifically does that look towards those inside and outside the body of Christ? Uh, first, Paul starts off by saying, in verse nine, that that everything that we do should be done in love. And this is the overarching framework for again everything he's gonna he's gonna go on to say that we. Should do in this passage. It's how he starts off with this particular uh, message and statement. He says, "Love must be without hypocrisy." If we were to kind of, I think, rephrase or maybe restate that idea here, it's that love would be true, right? It would be, it would be real. It would be pure. That it would be consistent with what love actually is. But that, of course, immediately raises the question: Well, what is it? <laughs> At least it should. What is this love? That Paul talks about. Uh, As we know in our day and time, the word love, it it gets thrown around easily and often, right? It's kind of like candy. We we throw that thing out uh, for for anything. It's used to describe a lot of different things. Uh, We've all heard people do that, and we've all done it ourselves. Just off the top of my head, uh, this week, I've told my wife and kids that I love them. Uh, I said I love my haircut, and uh, I loved... How the weather made me feel on Monday morning when I walked outside, right? Like that's a wide, wide net of things, all different ideas. Um, but but while I'm using the same word, I don't necessarily mean the same thing in all those contexts, right? At least, hopefully not. And so it's important that we once again we we come to the Bible to try to understand what it's saying and what it means, and, and we don't just kind of import our own ideas and 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 assumptions and definitions. On to the text, we first have to ask the question, when Paul uses this word love, what does he mean? Well, go back with me, just flip a few pages back to the beginning of Romans 5 for a second. And look in verse 6, where Paul actually defines this love for us. He tells us exactly what he means by it. Verse 6, he says, for while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died For the ungodly. Now look in verse 8. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the same idea that we find in maybe, probably the most popular verse in all the Bible, right? Everybody knows what I'm talking about. John 3.16, right? I mean, we're we're bringing out the artillery this morning already. We're going to go there. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that... Let's just pause here for a second because this is where uh, the idea, I think, of that verse gets lost a lot of time because we read the, we read the so love the world there as God so loved the world, right? And, and we make it kind of about the, the, the quantity of God's love or how much God loves us. But that's not really it. The idea is, is there's a way that God loves us. He so loved the world that... He gave His only begotten Son. You see that. And with more clarity than anywhere else, this is where we go to find the answer uh, to, to the question, not necessarily of how much God loves us, although that's a, that's a completely valid thing to ask and talk about, but more so the way that God has loved us. Where God gives up His, his only Son, holy and blameless, to be brutally tortured and murdered, hanging on a cross for a bunch of people who live in hatred and rebellion against him. And so, friends, what is the love that Paul is talking about when he says, love must be without hypocrisy? It's that. That's what he's talking about. There's a specific way that God has loved us, that he has shown us what love is through the giving of his son. I'll I'll admit to you this morning, uh, being vulnerable here with you all, I've seen a few Nicholas Sparks movies, okay? Okay more than I would have liked to. Too much dating in high school and college, honestly, that's all it got me, right? If there's any if there's any young guys in the house, you just file that away, take note of that, it's for you, it's for free. If you're lucky, it might be like Hallmark movies or something, but honestly, there's not that much greater. But, and I just like, I watch those movies and I've never once watched one of those movies and looked at the guy, like the main character, and been like, I want to be like him, right? Like it just, it has it, not once in, James Bond, different, so that's my guy, right? James Bond, like he's, he's a man's man. Nicholas Sparks characters, it's just a hard pass for me. <laughs> it just hasn't clicked. And part of it is this the love that they portray and kind of offer up in those movies, it's weak, right? Like, I'm sorry if you're into this, but, but it just is the kind of love that we find in, in, in romance novels and movies and in hollywood a lot of time it, it's it's often just romanticism right and, and this is how the world often defines love it becomes all about romance and and making me feel good and kind of getting my emotional high it, it's it's very self-serving in a lot of ways uh, never once have i seen a nicholas sparks movie about a man being uh, brutally tortured and murdered for the good of his bride right it, that just doesn't sell so good in hollywood but friends, we don't pursue a Jesus who just kind of pursues us through kind words and, and elaborate romantic gestures. We have a husband in Jesus who has real skin in the game. Do you follow me here? He doesn't, he doesn't just take us on long walks of the beach and horse rides into the sunset, right? He, he hung on the cross for you. He gave up everything so that we could be united with him. And this is what now informs the way that we're to love other people now. If we're staying focused and we're really understanding the point, the the reason this is so important is because this is what's going to govern this entire text. And and all of what Paul is going to say, and and really all of what the Christian life should look like, is that it should be covered in the love of Christ. Everything else, it's just filling in with the true and the pure and the real, unhypocritical love looks like but it should all be expressions of the love the way that Christ defines it on the cross uh, Paul makes this point about kind of this priority of love in first Corinthians 13 again there's a lot of we're not going to go all into it but a lot of parallels of what he's doing in those few chapters there and, and kind of what's going on in Romans 12 here with the emphasis on the body and unity and, and using your giftings and and all of that but but listen to what he says here in part of, uh, chapter 13 He says, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Nothing. See, moralism says that, that I should serve Christ to make him pleased with me, right? But the gospel says he, he's already pleased with me in Jesus. Moralism says that I serve other people to make them think highly of me, but the gospel says I serve them to point them to the love of Christ. Moralism says that the good works are enough, but the gospel says it's all about manifesting the love of God on sinners there's another point to make here as well when we when we kind of look at the context and remember some of the things that we uh, we, we talked about last week right we see that the need for each individual using their gifting it's it's this idea of, of the full measure of Christ being realized in the body you remember we talked about that that that's the body that they're a part of uh, after all it, it, it's Christ and when each Part is put together and kind of working the way that they should in unity with one another the end result is that the presence of Christ is made manifest that's the idea it's the full measure of Christ that Paul talks about over in Ephesians 4 like we looked at and and I think as we now move into these these following verses where we're at this morning it's really about the same thing right uh it's more detailed it gets more specific but when we zoom out it's still it's still ultimately about Christ's presence being recognized on earth through the local church, through his body. Uh, Grant Grant MacAskill, that's his name, he has a book called uh, Living in Union with Christ. This is honestly probably one of the best books I've read in a long time. I'm not quite willing to say it's on my list of like ones that every Christian should read, but, uh, but it's probably on my list of books that every Christian should read. But here's what he says. This is literally on page one. He says the core claim of this book is that All talk of the Christian moral life must begin and end with Paul's statement. This is from Galatians 2. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This means that we can never talk about the moral activity of a Christian without always, always, always in the same breath talking about Jesus. Because the goal of our salvation is not that we become better versions of ourselves, but that we come to inhabit and to manifest his moral identity. Friends, the gospel keeps us from moralism because it tells us that our good works are really not even ours to begin with. Rightly understood, they're they're Christ, because Christ is now the one who's actively uh, moving in my godliness through his Holy Spirit who works in me. And if that's true, friends, hear me, <laughs> if that's true this morning, if it's all his to begin with, by the work of the Spirit, if that's true, then the manifestations of his works are manifestations of him. It's about Jesus Christ and his ongoing presence on earth in his people. But now that we have it framed in this, this light, we, we have to deal with the, the equally valid and important question of, what does this love actually look like, right? What does it look like played out? This is where, again, Paul gets he gets more specific and more detailed on what, what this love actually looked like. Most commentators agree that there, there's some distinction between uh, those inside the church and those outside the church, and we alluded to that and kind of brought it up early on. Um, I'll just say here, I don't think that that, I think the distinction is, is here. I don't think it's super uh, clean or, or a perfect distinction, but I do think, um, well, the reason for that is because I think, honestly, a lot of them are relevant for both groups. But, but I do think the distinction's there. And so this is kind of how we're going to walk through this and, and how we'll talk about what this love looks like to both groups. And so first, let's talk about how does this gospel love inform the way that we're to love those within the same church body as us. Verse 9, it's, it's programmatic for the whole list and the focus on those inside the body uh, it's primarily in verses 10 to 13, so let's start by just, we're just going to kind of walk through these first few verses and, and talking about a few of the specific things that Paul says that we're supposed to do. We're not going to hit them all just for the sake of time, but let's talk about a few here quickly. He says, show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Uh, there's, a, there's a connection here, a couple connections actually, to, to Hebrews 13 verse 1 where the author says, let brotherly love continue. But right before that, at the end of chapter twelve, he's just a ta- he's just talked about um, this idea of an acceptable service or worship to God, which again is the same kind of idea that Paul began with at the beginning of chapter twelve. If you remember about our lives now, our entire lives being offered to God as a living sacrifice. Remember that, and and the language he kind of used with the, was that this is our our pleasing or acceptable or or spiritual fitting worship to God. It's what it's what makes sense in light of everything that God has done and so this affection to one another now it's rightly seen as part of our worship to show family affection with brotherly love it implies that we see each other in this in this familial light right this is this is another one of the metaphors for the body of Christ the church it's that we're a family now but again it's motivated by the love of Christ for us that that made us sons of God with him. We're in family with one another now because Christ has first put us in familial relationship with God. And so we, we relate to each other as a working out of our new identity in him. Next, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Can I just ask this, can I ask this? Is there anybody here in church who, who feels like they're competitive about outdoing one another and showing each other honor? People in the church can be competitive about all kinds of things. That's not our problem, right? Our problem is not being competitive. I look no further than the, than the comparison that I think probably lives within all of our hearts. Do you ever look around at other people comparing, feeling like you're doing a much better job with, than them? Or, or thinking that maybe you should be doing what they're doing because you would do it better than them? <laughs> Anybody Ever? There, there's, a, there's a competitive nature to this idea, sure, but while our competition that we, that we know and we love, it often serves ourselves, this gospel-centered competition now, it's about making much of the other person. It's completely flipped upside its head. The competitive mindset that we know, it's torn down, we see the actual substance of that is it's showing honor to one another. It's competition not in gaining for myself or making myself look better, but in making someone else look better. Uh, we could illustrate it like this. It'd be kind of like if the, if the Cleveland Browns this afternoon walked out onto the field and they said, you know what, today we're not gonna, we're not gonna try to do well and make ourselves look good today. We're gonna do everything that we can to make the other team look as good as possible. (laughs) So, (laughs) I heard some snickers. (laughs) Some of y'all are like, I mean, I, I thought that's what they did all the time, right? Like, like, welcome to life as a Browns fan. <laughs> Maybe I should have used the Buckeyes, I don't know. But but in all seriousness, like, that's not right, right? Like, it doesn't, when we really step back and think about it, it just does, it doesn't even make sense to say in that context. But friends, <laughs> how much different our churches would look like if everyone was motivated to bring each other more honor than they do themselves. Just think about what that would look like. This is what Paul exhorts us to in Philippians 2. You remember, he says, Make your attitude that of Christ Jesus, considering others more important than yourselves. It's making the presence of Christ manifest among us here through this, this humble attitude of Christ that says the other person is more important than I am. In verse 11, look there with me, Paul writes, do not lack diligence, be fervent in the Spirit, and serve the Lord. I want to spend a little more time on this one. We've we've all asked the question, or at least heard the question, and, and I'm sure at some point wrestled with it. Uh, is God sovereign, and is humanity responsible? And, and the answer to both is, is yes, 100%, right? Maybe God's sovereignty... A little bit more, but 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 both a hundred percent true. And this single verse I think encapsulates that thought very well in the context of what we're talking about and what it kind of looks like in the Christian life. Paul says both that we're to be diligent in what we're doing, but fervent in the spirit. Now I don't think this is just talking about any spirit here, or even primarily our own spirit. I think it's talking about the Holy Spirit. We're be fervent in the Holy Spirit who, who dwells among us. And this is where we get this idea that while, again, we're, we're absolutely diligent and zealous and, and take seriously all the Paul, all the things that Paul's telling us to do, it's never detached from a complete dependence on God and the Holy Spirit to do it through us. You understand that? Really, everything that we're talking about this morning, the whole when we step back and we make the conclusions the Bible makes, the Holy Spirit is the one doing all of it. The Holy Spirit is who unites us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's fruit is what, to, is what is to be displayed in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes God present within us. The Holy Spirit is the one completing the work that was started in us. And so, so how does the gospel keep us centered in our faithfulness to Him? By reminding us that the things we're called to do are also the means by which He brings about His purposes. It's not just about us being good little Christians now. It's about the work of God in our lives and in the world through his people. Uh, maybe we could say it this way. Why do we need to be fervent in the Spirit? Because it's spiritual work. Because it's his work. Yeah, we see this idea going on also, I think, in verse verse nine. Where he says, Detest evil and cling to what is good. And that that idea kind of it, it sort of forms this bookend with verse twenty one. If you remember how how it ends, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. And so, similarly to how we've said that that everything Paul commands us to do, it should be done with 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 love as the overarching idea and 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 motivation of all of it. Well, well this idea of good over evil, it also in a lot of ways summarizes everything that Paul commands us to do because this is spiritual language, friends. Good and evil—it's it, spiritual language. This is Genesis three and the fall of mankind. This is the knowledge of good and evil. This is Genesis 4 now, right after that, where sin, it's crouching at the door like a lion waiting to devour you. This is the choice between life and death that's consistently set before God's people in the Old Testament. It's not just about the things you do and don't do and how it makes you feel. It's about the restoration of humanity and the outpouring of God's love on his people. Friends, God is... God is still showing his love to you just the way that he did on Calvary. He's still doing that. And yes, sometimes that's through giving you good things. Yes, sometimes that's keeping you from danger. Yes, that's through guiding you in life in all kinds of ways. But it's also through his people. Understand, God wants to show his love to me through you. Do you understand that? And vice versa. So, so get that, and then stop and realize this is what you're called to. And the only way that you can walk in that, it, it's not on your own because it's not yours. It's Christ. You can only do that by the Spirit of Christ by being fervent in the Spirit. We're to be both diligent in our actions, but in all of our diligence and our discipline and our effort, we do it in total trust and dependence on the spirit of God to work out his purposes through us and the things that we do because we trust that he's going to finish the work he started he's going to do it in part through our faithful service to him just a couple more quickly here in, in this little section let's skip to verse 13 he says share with the saints in their needs we see this pictured for us in the early church often, I think, in Acts, and, and even described in Romans over in uh, chapter 15, verse 25, where uh, you see Paul, he says that he's traveling to serve the saints and make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, the idea here is that if one of the saints is in need, then we're all in need. Uh, I, I bear the weight and burden of the needs of my brothers in Christ as members of the same body as they are. Again, I mentioned this, this kind of section in 1 Corinthians, but this is what he's getting at in, in chapter 12 there, right after we read last week, if you remember that, that passage uh, where he's talking about there being no division in the body. Well, right after that, what we read last week, he says, so if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Again, there's a lot of common refrains there as to, to what we see here with suffering and honor, uh, rejoicing, all again motivated by this understanding that we're now one, one body in Christ. And the idea being, now what, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine, right? It's kind of that idea. Uh, similarly to how in salvation, Christ, he takes all of our sin upon him as if it were his own, and we receive all of his righteousness by faith as if it were our own, Will we now walk in a similar pattern with each other. If there's a brother suffering among us, I suffer with him, right? If a brother rejoices, I rejoice with him. It's a similar idea to to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In verse 15, whatever that thing is, I take it upon myself as if it were my own. Paul goes on here as well. He says, pursue hospitality just a really quick note on this hospitality i think often comes with this this connotation of like our our home right and inviting people in or or being welcoming and i think uh we think about that with churches a lot and how we welcome people into our community and that's it's definitely part of this but i think we miss it when we make it just about a a physical space or kind of a nice environment uh, to to come into if that makes sense you follow what i'm saying The the gospel, it it talks about God saving us not primarily into like a new physical space that, that we dwell in now, but a place that he himself is present in. You understand that? The hospitality that God has shown us, it's an invitation first and foremost into a deep relationship with him. In his presence, it's the very thing that was lost in the garden. It's not just where they were, it was who they were with. In salvation, he now dwells among us. There's there's intimacy and connection and relationship that are offered up that we're welcomed into, and the same is true for us now. We're to walk in this same sort of hospitality. Again, not just about giving people a warm environment, but giving them a, a warm relationship with us as well. Now, <laughs> we're only a few things into this list, right? Like, it, it's 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 a lot. We're only a few things in, and maybe some of you at this point— uh, you, you may be feeling one of two ways, right? You're either feeling good about how you're stacking up so far, maybe, or, or you're feeling a little guilty about how you're not quite performing as good as you should in these things. Maybe you're very affectionate with your church family. Maybe you're a little, I don't know, crusty towards them. Maybe you're remembering all the ways that you try your best to show honor. To those around you in any way you can. Maybe you're realizing you've never tried to show honor to anyone ever. Maybe you're thinking about how you're always the first person to meet someone's needs in your church family. Maybe you've never done that. And, and, and hear me, hear me, we're going to keep coming back to this. What is the remedy for both? What's the remedy for both? of the, Well, it's not just a little bit more of the other, right? It's not just do better and it's not pull back. It's remember your identity and your function in the gospel. (laughs) The gospel keeps us centered on the gospel. No kidding, right? And so if you're reading this list like a law to you and you're feeling pretty good about how you stack up, remember who you are in Jesus. It's not yours and it's not about you. It's Jesus being made manifest around you because that's the body you're a part of in the gospel. And if you're reading this like a law to you but feeling guilty about how you're not doing any of those things be compelled not by a debtor's ethic to repay god or or even a guilty conscience that feels like uh, you you have to earn merit or keep approval from god or others be reminded of who you are in jesus and walk in the new identity that he's given you that's the gospel friends and there's obviously more that can be said here but again (laughs) it's the gospel that keeps us motivated by the right things not just doing the right things, but doing the right things also for the right reasons and with the right heart so that we can show the love of Christ to those around us. Uh, we, we've talked now about what this love that we're called to, how that can look towards those inside the church. But now, how do those things inform the way that we love those outside the church? So I think Paul talks about both here. We mentioned this distinction between Again, insiders and outsiders and how it's not, it's not necessarily a perfect distinction or super clean. But, but the transition most noticeably, I think, takes place in verse 14. Again, we're not going to get to everything that's said here. Um, but, but let's just try to talk about a few and I think make some statements that, that I, I do think capture the heart of most of it, if not all of it. Uh, one thing Paul says is that as best we can, we should be at peace with one another. This is stated in verse 18. He says, if possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. I think the same idea also in verse 16 where he says, be in agreement with one another or live in harmony with one another. I also think in verse 17 with, that, with this idea of, of uh, trying to do what's honorable in everyone's eyes. Uh, first reading, I don't know, like maybe it's not this way for you. I know for me it was. At first reading these things, they, they sound a little off, right? Like this just sounds a little too chummy with the outside world, Paul, right? But notice what Paul's saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying that we live in accordance with what the world says is right or wrong. He's already said to cling to what is good and detest evil. Again, as the Bible defines it. So, whatever being in agreement means, or or doing what is honorable in everyone's eyes means in verse eighteen. It it can't mean that we now adopt the mindset of the world or the definitions of the world or to be conformed to this age, as he said in verse 2. He's also not saying here that this is always going to happen. He makes a very, very important qualification on this. He says, if possible, live at peace with everyone. So there's a level at which Paul understands this. It, It just isn't going to be possible to be at peace with everybody. He understands that. There's a point at which our faithfulness to, to, to God and what he's asking of us, it's going to put us at enmity with the world. I think we see that idea all throughout Scripture and the New Testament, and, and this isn't a contradiction to that. Paul gets that more than anybody probably. And so what is he saying? Well, I think the idea is more the way that we, that we conduct ourselves, even in our faithfulness to God, and the reason why. If you, if you look over in, in, again, chapter 15, here in verse 2, uh, Paul, he kind of expounds a little bit on the motivation or the purpose for why we should try to please everyone, as he says. Read there, he says, each one of us must please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, we don't want to jump too far ahead here. We're going to leave Romans 15 for whoever's preaching Romans 15. But the idea and the context around that statement, it's, it's this idea that he's going to talk about, really in 14 also, but of, of uh, the freedom of the Christian, right? If you've heard that phrase, or, or, or Christian liberty, we could say. But it's, it's also this idea that love would govern even the freedoms that we have in Christ now. And so I don't, I don't hold on to my freedoms in the gospel as sort of this means of now uh, attaining things that I want or, or trying to force others to behave that I want them to. No, it, it's actually just the opposite of that, if you understand it. Um, it, it, it instead, it should be this idea of that I, I freely give up my freedoms. I'll lay them down, right, sacrificially for the good of my neighbor so that they can be built up and not torn down. You, you see the commonality here. Again, it, it's, it's seeing the needs of others as more important than my own and loving them in that way that informs how I should behave towards them. And so here when, when Paul's uh, he's telling us to try to live peaceably with everyone and be in agreement with one another, it's with that kind of idea in mind. It, it's not that we sacrifice the things inherent to the gospel that, that God would tell us we should do, but that we sacrifice our own freedoms... Our own preferences that we now have in the gospel, the things that Christ has won for us, so that we can build others up in Christ. It's the idea that this gospel freedom, it's not ultimately given to me so I can serve myself, but so that I can serve my neighbor. That's what Paul gets at in in Galatians 5 when he says, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but what? But serve one another in love. That Luther, Luther comments on this very thing when he says from faith there flows a love and joy in the Lord from love proceeds a joyful, willing and free mind that serves the neighbor and takes no account of gratitude or ingratitude praise or blame gain or loss we do not serve others with an eye toward making them obligated to us nor do we distinguish between friends and enemies or anticipate their thankfulness or ingratitude. Rather, rather, we freely and willingly spend ourselves in all that we have. See, many of us would say, and I believe genuinely would, be be willing to go and show mercy or love to somebody in, in one giant swift act. But are you willing to show it one single drop at a time? Uh, imagine filling an ocean with water, but but doing so, just one drop a day. One day you've got one drop. Two days you've got two drops. Two weeks go by, you've got you've got fourteen drops. And this is how this often works, friends. And let me just suggest to you that that. Loving them in this way, consistently. Not just in a single act, but but consistently giving ourselves and everything that we have to them. This is part of how we live peaceably and honorably among a watching world. The way that we live peaceably among sinful people in a sinful world, it's not by compromising the gospel. That's not what Paul's saying. It's by living it out. The way that we try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes, it's not—it's not by succumbing to what the world says is good and honorable. It's by loving them the way that Jesus loves us, by giving them ourselves and all that we have. But this too, it must be motivated by by this kind of hope in the future work of God. Let me just read verses nineteen and. and 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 let's talk about these verses for a little bit. He says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. The, the gospel and our identity in Christ, it makes plain that our, our interaction with the world, it's not, it's not always going to be a cordial one, right? But our response here, it's never to take justice into our own hands. It's instead to believe and trust in the future work of God on our behalf and also towards them as well. You see that. So, so when you have enemies, and you will have enemies if you're engaging the world, that's going to happen. When you have enemies, what should you do? You love them. And why should you love them? Well, remember where we defined what love was. It was Romans 5. It's Christ dying for us there in verses 6 and 8 that we looked at. But just a few verses later in Romans 5, verse 10, Paul says this. He says, while we were still enemies. (laughs) While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. There's a writer who talks about how he wants... um, watched a video about World War I that was made from the perspective of the Germans. And he talks about how he was struck by it, not because of, of the way that it, it talked about the war or kind of portrayed, you know, how the war went or who won or anything like that. Uh, it, 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 was, it was the recognition of a humanity on the other side of that. He saw families sending fathers out to war he saw families sending siblings out to war wives and children sending loved ones off it, it showed funerals of fallen soldiers it showed humanity on the other side that looked very very similar to the one that he knew on his side what was striking to him was not how different they were but how much they were the same this was his comment in reflection of that, he said, It abuses our sensitivities to hear hear about World War One from the enemy's perspective. When Oprah interviews the confessed spouse abuser, we refuse to sympathize sympathize or identify with this enemy of decency. Yet deep down, every one of us knows the enemy's perspective, for we have met the enemy. We have met the enemy every morning in the mirror, staring us in the face. We have met the enemy in our prejudices. We have known the enemy's anger in our fits of rage. We have practiced the enemy's savageness with our own sharp tongues. We don't like to look at the dark side of humanity's cruelties to humanity, for we do not want to gaze inward to the darkness of our soul. We've met the enemy in the mirror, staring us in the face, and sin is ugly, and sin is the ugliness, ugliest, when it is ours. And so, friends, why do we love our enemies this morning? Because we too were once enemies of God. And how do we love our enemies? The same way God loved us. It's by humbling himself and giving himself up for us, giving himself to us. And I think this in a lot of ways is essentially what Paul is getting at with this language of, of heaping fiery coals on his head. We're going to close with this, but let's think about this for, for just a second. Let's think about how we've kind of framed this whole conversation this morning about the Christian ethic and what the grounds is for that Our identity, right? It's about God's presence on earth through his people. Let's keep those ideas in mind as we think about this imagery now. This is a quotation out of Proverbs 25. It's, it's poetic, and so think about the imagery of fiery coals and think about what connections that might have to the presence of God. That maybe you're remembering in Genesis 15 when, when God comes down in the form of a smoking fire pot. Or, or maybe you remember in Exodus when God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And maybe you remember when he, he leads his people by a pillar of fire, when that same pillar of fire it throws his enemies, his people's enemies into confusion so they can escape or, or maybe you remember when they finally get out of, of Egypt and they come to the mountain to worship him and it says the appearance of the Lord was like a consuming fire or, or maybe you're remembering one of the many other examples of God's presence being, being tied to this idea of fire but here's the point. Worship team, you can, start, you can start to come up if you want. We're going to close with this. What does it mean to heap fiery coals on his head? Well, I, I think it's this. It's a poetic way of saying I'm going to literally heap the presence of God on him. When my enemy is hungry, I feed him. When my enemy is thirsty, I give him something to drink. Why? Is it to make me look good or, or to be a better Christian or bring honor and glory to me? No, because that's the way that God loves his enemies. And he wants to continue to love his enemies in that way through his people so that they too can taste and see and experience the goodness and the grace of God and be drawn to him in faith just like we were. It's all about Jesus, friends. It's always all about Jesus. And the gospel tells us that, that Again, even in, in our duty, in our responsibility to Jesus Christ, not just as Savior, but as Lord of our lives, it's grounded in the fact that He has made us to be in union with Him. And, and that even though, again, he, he's, he's died, He rose again, He's seated at the right hand of God right now, having secured victory, storing it up for us, and this eternal weight of glory, friends, even though all of that is going on, He's still present here. He's still with us, among us, present, living in the world because he sent his spirit who dwells among us. And as, as, as we just walk in the new identity that he's given us in these specific ways, we show the world what the love of Jesus looks like. And this exact thing is what the gospel calls us into. Amen? Let's pray and we'll close. Song here. Father, we thank you again for for your grace, Lord, for your goodness, your mercy, Lord. We thank you that you didn't wait for us to get ourselves together before we come to you, that you came down while we were still in the midst of our sin, Lord, enemies of God. And you saved us. You made a way. You, you, you showed us what love looks like, Lord. And help us now on this side of it as, as people who have, who have believed that message, who, who trust you for our salvation. Help us never to ever get over the grace of the gospel. Help us to never get over our salvation in Jesus. Help us to never stop seeing you as, the, as, as the, the source of it all and the thing that informs everything that we do. Help us not to fall into mindset of, of self-improvement and how we how we rank and match up, Lord, help us to see ourselves rightly in union with you. Help us to, to see our identity the way the gospel defines it. And help us to walk in that, Lord. Again, not that not that, uh, that 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 we would just be better people now, Lord, but that people would actually get to experience you through us. That's our hope and our prayer, Lord. And we ask that by your word, through your spirit, you do that work in us this morning.